0: The Shack, Where Tragedy Confronts Eternity. A novel by William Paul Young. Forward. Who wouldn't be skeptical when a man claims to have spent an entire weekend with God in a shack no less? And this was The Shack. I have known Mac for a bit more than 20 years Since the day we both showed up at a neighbor's house to help him bale a field of hay to put up for his couple of cows, since then, he and I have been, since then, he and I have been, as the kids say these days, hanging out, sharing a coffee, or for me, HIT, extra hot with soy. Our conversations bring a deep sort of pleasure, always sprinkled with lots of laughs and once in a while a tear or two. Frankly, the older we get, the more we hang out, if you know what I mean. His full name is Mackenzie Allen Phillips, although most people call him Allen. It's a family tradition. The men all have the same first name, but are commonly known by their middle names, presumably to avoid the ostentation of one, two, and three, or junior and senior. It works well for identifying telemarketers too, especially the ones who call as if they were your best friend. So he and his grandfather, father, and now his oldest son all have the given name of McKenzie, but are commonly referred to by their middle names. Only Nan, his wife, and close friends call him Mac, although I've heard a few total strangers yell, hey Mac, where'd you learn to drive? Mac was born somewhere in the Midwest, a farm boy in an Irish-American family, committed to calloused hands and rigorous rules. Although externally religious, his overly strict church elder father was a closet drinker, especially when the rain didn't come. Or came too early. And most of the times in between. Mac never talks much about him, but when he does, his face loses emotion like a tide going out, leaving dark and lifeless eyes. From the few stories Mac has told me, I know his daddy was not a fall asleep happy kind of alcoholic, but a vicious mean, beat your wife and then ask God for forgiveness drunk. It all came to a head when 13-year-old Mackenzie reluctantly bared his soul to a church leader during a youth revival. Overtaken by the conviction of the moment, Mac confessed in tears that he hadn't done anything to help his mama as he witnessed on more than one occasion his drunken dad beat her unconscious. What Mac failed to consider was that his confessor worked and churched with his father, And by the time he got home, his daddy was waiting for him on the front porch, with his mama and sisters conspicuously absent. He later learned that they had been shuffled off to his Aunt Mary's in order to give his father some freedom to teach his rebellious son a lesson about respect. For almost two days, tied to the big oak at the back of the house, he was beaten with a belt and Bible verses every time his dad woke from his stupor and put down his bottle. Two weeks later when Mac was finally able to put one foot in front of the other again, he just up and walked away from home. But before he left, he put varmint poison in every bottle of booze he could find on the farm. He then unearthed from next he then unearthed from next to the outhouse the small tin box housing all his earthly treasures, one photograph of the family with everybody squinting as they looked into the sun. His daddy standing off to one side, <clears throat> a 1950 Luke Easter rookie baseball card, a little bottle that contained about an ounce of Ma Griff, the only perfume his mama had ever worn, a spool of thread and a couple of needles, a spool of thread and a couple needles, a small silver diecast U.S. Air Force F-86 jet, and his entire life savings, fifteen dollars and thirteen cents. He crept back into the house and slipped a note under his mama's pillow while his father lay snoring off on another binge. It just said, "Someday I hope you can forgive me." He swore he would never look back and he didn't, not for a long time. Thirteen is too young to be all grown up, but Mac had little choice and adapted quickly. He doesn't talk about he doesn't talk much about the years that followed. Most of it was spent overseas working his way around the world, sending money to his grandparents who passed it on to his mama. In one of those distant countries, I think he even picked up a gun in some kind of terrible conflict. He's hated war with a dark passion ever since I've known him. Whatever happened in his early 20s, he eventually ended up in a seminary in Australia. When Mac had his fill of the when Mac had his fill of theology and philosophy, he became he came back to the states, made peace with his mama and sisters, and moved out to Oregon, where he met and married Nanette Samuelson. In a world of talkers, Mac is a thinker and a doer. He doesn't say much unless you ask him directly, which most folks have learned not to do. When he does speak, you wonder if he isn't some sort of alien who sees the landscape of human ideas and experiences differently than everybody else. The thing is, he usually makes uncomfortable sense in a world where most folks would rather just hear what they are used to hearing, which is often not much of anything. Those who know him generally like him well enough, provided he keeps his thoughts mostly to himself. And when he does talk, it isn't that they stop liking him, rather they are not quite so satisfied with themselves. Mac once told me that he used to speak his mind more freely in his younger years, but he admitted that most of such talk was a survival mechanism to cover his hurts. He often often ended up spewing his pain on everyone around him. He says that he had a way of pointing out people's faults and humiliating them while maintaining his own sense of of false power and control not too endearing as I pen these words I reflect on the Mac I've always known quite ordinary and certainly not anyone particularly special except to those who truly know him he is just about to turn 56 and he is a rather unremarkable slightly overweight balding short white guy which describes a lot of men in these parts You probably wouldn't notice him in a crowd or feel uncomfortable sitting next to him while he snoozes on the max, or the metro, the metro transit, during his once a week trip into town for a sales meeting. He does most of his work from a little home office at his place up on Wildcat Road. He sells something high tech and gadgety that I don't pretend to understand. Techno gizmos that somehow make everything go faster, as if life were not going fast enough already. You don't realize how smart Mac is unless you happen to eavesdrop on a dialogue he might be having with an expert. I've been there when suddenly the language being spoken hardly resembles English and I find myself struggling to grasp the concepts spilling out like a tumbling river of gemstones. He can speak intelligently about most anything and even though you sense he has strong convictions he has a gentle way about him that lets you keep yours. His favorite topics are all about God and creation and why people believe what they do. His eyes light up and he gets this smile that curls at the corners of his lips and suddenly, like a little kid, the tiredness melts away and he becomes ageless and hardly able to contain himself. But at the same time, Mac is not very religious. He seems to have a love-hate relationship with religion and maybe even with God, he suspects is brooding distant he seems to have a love-hate relationship with religion and maybe even with the god he suspects even with the god he suspects is brooding, distant and aloof. Little barbs of sarcasm occasionally spill through the cracks in his reserve like piercing darts dipped in poison from a well deep from a well deep inside. Although we sometimes both show up on Sundays at the same local pew and pulpit Bible Church, the 55th Independent Assembly of St. John the Baptist, we like to call it, you can tell that he is not too comfortable there. Mac has been married to Nan for just more than 33 most, happily years, most happy years. He says she saved his life and paid a high price to do it. For some reason beyond understanding... She seems to love him now more than ever, even though I get the sense that he hurt her something fierce in the early years. I suppose that since most of our hurts come through relationships, so will our healing. And I know that grace rarely makes sense for those looking in from the outside. In any case, Mac married up. Nan is the mortar that holds the tiles of their family together. While Mac has struggled in a world with many shades of gray, hers is mostly black and white. Common sense comes so naturally to Nan that she can't even see it for the gift it is. Raising a family kept her from pursuing dreams of becoming a doctor, but as a nurse she has excelled and gained considerable recognition for her chosen work with oncology patients who are terminal. While Mac's relationship with God is wide, nans is deep this oddly matched pair are the parents of five unusually beautiful kids mac likes to say that they all got their good looks from him because nan still has hers two of the three boys are out of the house john newly married works in sales for a local company and tyler a recent college graduate is off at school working on a master's degree josh and one of the two girls Catherine, her name is kate are still at home and attend the local community college then there is the late arrival melissa or missy as we're fond of calling her she well you'll get to know some of them better in these pages the last few years have been how how might i put this remarkably peculiar mac has changed he is now even more different and special than he used to be and all the time i've known him he has been a rather gentle and kind soul but since his stay in the hospital three years ago he has been well even nicer he's become one of those rare people who are totally at home in their own skin and i feel at home around him like i do with nobody else When we go our separate ways, it seems that I have just had the best conversation of my life, even though I usually have done most of the talking. And with respect to God, Mac is no longer just wide. He has gone way deep, but the dive cost him dearly. These days are very different from seven or so years ago. When the great sadness entered his life, "'and he almost quit talking altogether. "'About that time and for almost two years, "'our hanging out stopped, "'as if by some unspoken mutual agreement. "'I saw Mac only occasionally at the local grocery store "'or even more rarely at church, "'and although a polite hug was usually exchanged, "'not much of any consequence was spoken. "'It was even difficult for him to look me in the, in the eyes.' Maybe he didn't want to enter a conversation that might tear the the scab off of his wounded heart. But that all changed after a nasty accident with... But there I go again, getting ahead of myself. We'll get to all of that in due time. Just to say that these last few years seem to have given Mac his life back and lifted the burden of the great sadness. What happened three years ago totally changed the melody of his life and it's a song I can't wait to play for you. Although he communicates well enough verbally, Mac is not comfortable with his writing skills, something that he knows I am passionate about. So he asked if I would ghostwrite this story, his story, for the kids and for Nan. He wanted a narrative to help him express to them not only the depth of of his love, but also to help them understand what had been going on In his inside world. You know, that place where there's just you alone and maybe God, if you believe, if you believe there is, I'm sorry, if you believe in him. Of course, God might be there even if you don't believe in him. That would be just like him. He hasn't been called the grand interferer for nothing. What you are about to read is something that Mac and I have struggled with for many months to put into words. It is a little, well, no, it is a lot on the fantastic side. Whether some parts of it are actually true or not, I won't be the judge. Suffice to say that while some things may not be scientifically provable, they can still be true nonetheless. I will tell you honestly that being a part of this story has affected me deep inside, in places I had never been before and didn't even know existed. I confess to you that I desperately want everything Mac has told me to be true. Most days, I am right there with him, but others, when the visible world of concrete and computers seem to be the real world, I lose touch and have my doubts. A couple of final disclaimers. Mac would like you to know that if you happen upon this story and hate it, he says, Sorry, but it wasn't primarily written for you. Then again, maybe it was. What you are about to read is the best Mac can remember about what happened. This is his story, not mine. So the few times I show up, I'll refer to myself in the third person from Mac's point of view memory can be a tricky companion at times especially with the accident and I would not be too surprised in spite of our concerted effort toward accuracy if some factual errors and faulty remembrances are reflected in these pages they are not intentional I can promise you that the conversations and events are recorded as truthfully as Mac can remember them So please try to cut him a little slack. As you'll see, these are not easy things to talk about. Signed, Willie. Chapter One A Confluence of Paths Two roads diverged in the middle of my life. I heard a wise man say, I took the road less traveled by, and that's made the difference every night and every day. By Larry Norman, with apologies to Robert Frost. March unleashed a torrent of rainfall after an abnormal dry winter. A cold front out of Canada then descended and was held in place by a swirling wind that roared down the George, the Gorge, by a swirling wind that roared down the gorge from Eastern Oregon, although spring was surely just around the corner, the God of Winter was not about to relinquish its hard-won dominion without a tussle. There was a blanket of new snow in the cascades, and rain was now freezing on impact with the frigid ground outside the house. Enough reason for Mac to snuggle up with a book and hot cider and a hot cider and wrap up in the warmth of a crackling fire but instead he spent the better part of the morning telecommuting into his downtown desktop sitting comfortably in his home in his home office wearing pajama pants and a t-shirt he made his sales calls mostly to the east coast he paused frequently listening to the sound of crystalline rain tinging off his window and watching the slow but steady accumulation of frozen ice thickening on every outside on everything outside he was becoming inexorably trapped inexorably trapped as an ice prisoner in his own home much to his delight there is something joyful about storms that interrupt routine Snow or freezing rain can suddenly release you from expectations, performance demands, and the tyranny of appointments and schedules. And unlike illness, it is largely a a corporate rather than an individual experience. One can almost hear a unified sigh rise from the nearby city and surrounding countryside where nature has intervened to give respite, to the wary humans slogging it out within her purview. All those affected this way are united by a mutual excuse, and the heart is suddenly and unexpectedly a little giddy. There will be no apologies needed for not showing up to some commitment or other. Everyone understands and shares in this singular justification. And the sudden alleviation of the pressure to produce makes the heart merry. Of course, it is also true that storms interrupt business and, while a few companies make a bit extra, some companies lose money. Meaning there are those who find no joy when everything shuts down temporarily, but they can't blame anyone for their loss of production or for not being able to make it to the office. Even if it's hardly more than a day or two, Somehow, each person feels like the master of his or her own world, simply because those little droplets of water freeze as they hit the ground. Even commonplace activities became extraordinary. Routine choices become adventures and are often experienced with a sense of heightened clarity. Late in the afternoon, Mac bundled up and headed outdoors to struggle the hundred or so yards down the long driveway to the mailbox. The ice had magically turned this simple everyday task into a foray against the elements, the raising of his fist in opposition to the brute power of nature, and in an act of defiance, laughing in its face. The fact that no one would notice or care mattered little to him, just the thought made him smile inside. The icy rain pellets stung his cheeks and hands as he carefully worked his way up and down the slight, undulations of the driveway he looked he looked he supposed like a drunken sailor gingerly heading toward the next watering hole when you face the force of an ice storm you don't exactly walk boldly forward in a show of unbridled confidence bluster will get you battered mac had to get up off his knees twice before he was finally hugging the mailbox like some long-lost friend. He passed to take in the beauty of a world engulfed in crystal. Everything reflected light and contributed to the heightened brilliance of the late afternoon. The trees in the neighbor's field had all donned transulent mantles, and each now stood unique but unified in its presentation. It was a glorious world, and for a brief moment its blazing splendor almost lifted, even if only for a few seconds, the great sadness from Mac's shoulders. It took almost a minute to knock off the ice that had already sealed shut the door on the mailbox. The reward for his efforts was a single envelope with only his first name, typewritten written on the outside, no stamp, no postmark, and no return address. Curious, he tore the end of the envelope, which was no easy task with fingers beginning with fingers beginning to stiffen from the cold. Turning his back to the breath-snatching wind, he finally coaxed the single small rectangle of unfolded paper out of its nest. The typewritten message simply said, Mackenzie, it's been a while. I've missed you. I'll be at the shack next weekend if you want to get together. Signed, Papa. Mac stiffened as a wave of nausea rolled over him and then just as quickly mutated into anger. He purposely thought about the shack as little as possible, and even when he did, his thoughts were neither kind nor good. If this was someone's idea of a bad joke, he had truly outdone himself. And to sign it, Papa, just made it all the more horrifying. Idiot, he grunted thinking about Tony, the mailman, an overly friendly Italian with a big heart but little tact. Why would he even deliver such a ridiculous envelope? It wasn't even stamped. Mac angrily stuffed the envelope and note into his coat pocket and turned to start the slide back in the general direction of the house. Buffeting gusts of wind, which had initially slowed him, now shortened at the time it took to traverse the mini glacier that was thickening beneath his feet. He was doing just fine, thank you, until he reached that place in the driveway that sloped a little downward and to the left. Without any effort or intention, he began to build up speed, sliding on shoes with soles that had about as much traction as a duck landing on a frozen pond. Arms flailing wildly in hopes of somehow maintaining the potential for balance, Mac found himself careening directly toward the only tree of any substantial size bordering the driveway. The one whose lower limbs he had hacked off only a few short months before. Now it stood eager to embrace him, half naked and seemingly anxious for a little retribution. In a fraction of a thought, he chose the chicken's way out and tried to plop himself down by allowing his feet to slip out from under him, which is what they had naturally wanted to do anyway. Better to have a sore butt than pick slivers out of his face. But the adrenaline rush caused him to overcompensate, and in slow motion, Mac watched his feet rise up in front of him as if jerked up by some jungle trap. He hit hard, back of the head first, and skidded to a heap at the base of the shimmering tree, which seemed to stand over him with a smug look, mixed with disgust and not a little despair and not a little disappointment. The world went momentarily black, or so it seemed. He lay there, dazed, staring up into the sky, squinting as the icy precipitation rapidly cooled his flushed face. For a fleeting pause, everything felt oddly warm and peaceful. His ear momentarily knocked out by the impact. His ire, his ire momentarily knocked out by the impact. "'Now who's the idiot?' he muttered to himself, "'hoping that no one had been watching. "'Cold was creeping quickly through his coat and sweater, "'and Mac knew the icy rain that was both melting and freezing beneath him "'would soon become a major discomfort. "'Groaning and feeling like a much older man, "'he rolled onto his hands and knees. "'It was then that he saw the bright red skid mark tracing his journey,' from point of impact to final destination as if birthed by the sudden awareness of his injury a dull pounding began crawling up the back of his head instinctively he reached for the source of the drumbeat and brought his hand away bloody with rough ice and sharp gravel gouging his hands and knees mac half crawled and half slid until he eventually made it to a level part of the driveway With not a little effort, he was finally able to stand and gingerly inch his way toward the house, humbled by the powers of ice and gravity. Once inside, Mac methodically shed the layers of outerwear as best he could, his half-frozen fingers responding with about as much dexterity as oversized clubs at the ends of his arms. He decided to leave the drizzly, blood-stained mess right where he doffed it in the entryway, "'and retreated painfully to the bathroom to examine his wounds. "'There was no question that the icy driveway had won. "'The gash on the back of his head was oozing around a few small pebbles "'still embedded in his scalp. "'As he had feared, a significant lump had already formed, "'emerging like a humpback whale breaching the wild waves of his thinning hair. "'Mac found it a difficult chore to patch himself up "'by trying to see the back of his head.' using a small handheld mirror that reflected a reverse image of the bathroom mirror. A short frustration later, he gave up. A short frustration later, he gave up, unable to get his hands to go in the right direction and unsure which of the two mirrors was lying to him. By gingerly probing around the soggy gash, he succeeded in picking out the biggest pieces of debris, until it hurt so much to continue. Grabbing some first-aid ointment and plugging the wound as best he could, he then tied a washcloth to the back of his head with some gauze that he found in a bathroom drawer. Glancing at himself in the mirror, he thought he looked a little like some rough sailor out of Moby Dick. It made him laugh, then wince. He would have to wait until Nan made it home before he would get any real medical attention that attention being one of the many benefits of being married to a registered nurse anyway he knew that the worse it looked the more sympathy he would get there was often some compensation in every trial if one looked hard enough he swallowed a couple over the counter painkillers to dull the throbbing to dull the throbbing and then limped toward the front entry Not for an instant had Mac forgotten about the note. Rummaging through the pile of wet and bloody clothing, he finally found it in his coat pocket, glanced at it, and then headed back into his office. He located the post office number and dialed it. As expected, Annie, the matronly postmaster and keeper of everyone's secrets, answered the phone. Hi, is Tony in by chance? Hey Mac, is that you? Recognized your voice? Of course she did. Sorry, but Tony ain't back yet. In fact, I just talked to him on the radio, and he's only made it halfway up Wildcat, not even to your place yet. Do you need me to have him call you, or would you just like to give him a message? Oh, hi. Is that you, Annie? He couldn't resist, even though her Midwestern accent left no doubt. Sorry, I was busy for there for a second. Didn't hear a word you said. She laughed. Now, Mac, I hope you heard every word. Don't you be going and trying to kid a kidder? I wasn't born yesterday, you know. What do you want me to tell him if he makes it back alive? Actually, you already answered my question. There was a pause at the other end. Actually... I don't remember you asking a question. What's wrong with you, Mac? Still still smoking too much dope, or do you just do that on Sunday mornings to make it through the church service? At this, she started to laugh, as if caught off guard by the brilliance of her own sense of humor. Now, Annie, you know I don't smoke dope, never did, and don't ever want to. Of course, Annie knew no such thing but Mac was taking no chances on how she might remember the conversation in a day or two. Wouldn't be the first time that her sense of humor morphed into a good story that soon became fact. He could see his name being added to the church prayer chain. It's okay. I'll just catch Tony some other time. It's no big deal. Okay, then. Just stay indoors where it's safe. Don't you know, an old guy like you could have lost his sense of balance over the years. Wouldn't want to see you slip and hurt your pride. Way things are shaping up, Tony might not make it up to your place at all. We can do snow, sleet, and darkness of night pretty well, but this frozen rain stuff, it's a challenge to be sure. Thanks, Annie. I'll try to remember your advice. Talk to you later. Bye now. His head was pounding more than ever, little trip hammers beating to the rhythm of his heart. "'That's odd,' he thought. "'Who would dare put something like that in our mailbox?' "'The painkillers had not yet fully kicked in, "'but were present enough to dull the edge of worry "'that he was starting to feel, and he was suddenly very tired. "'Laying his head down on the desk, "'he thought he had just dropped off to sleep "'when the phone startled him awake. "'Uh, hello?' "'Hi, love. You sound like you've been asleep.' It was Nan, sounding unusually cheery, even though he felt he could hear the underlying sadness that lurked just beneath the surface of every conversation. She loved this kind of weather as much as he usually did. He switched on the desk lamp and glanced at the clock, surprised that he had been out for a couple of hours. Ugh, sorry, I guess I dozed off for a bit. "'Well, you sound a little groggy. Is everything all right?' Yep, even though it was almost dark outside, Mac could see that the storm had not let up. It had even deposited a couple more inches of ice. Tree branches were hang- hanging low, and he knew some would eventually break from the weight, especially if the wind kicked up. I had a little tussle with the driveway when I got, when I got the mail, but other than that, everything is fine. Where are you? I'm still at Arlene's and I think me and the kids will spend the night here. It's always good for Kate to be around the family. Seems to restore a little balance. Arlene was Nan's sister who lived across the river in Washington. Anyway, it's really too slick to go out. Hopefully it'll break up by morning. I wish I had made it home before it got so bad, but oh well. She paused. How's it up at the house? Well, it's absolutely stunningly beautiful and a whole lot safer to look at than walk in. Trust me, I for sure don't want you to try and get up here in this mess. Nothing's moving. I don't even think Tony was able to bring us the mail. I thought you already got the mail. She queried. Nope, I didn't actually get the mail. I thought Tony had already come, and I went out to get it there there he hesitated looking down at the note that lay on the desk where he had placed it. There wasn't any mail yet. I called Annie and she said Tony probably wouldn't be able to make it up the hill, and I'm not going out there again to see if he did. Anyway, he quickly changed the subject to avoid more questions. How is Kate doing over there? There was a pause, then a long sigh. When Nan spoke her voice, when Nan spoke... Her voice was hushed to a whisper, and he could tell she was covering her mouth on the other end. Mac, I wish I knew. She's She is just like talking to a rock, and no matter what I do, I can't get through. When we're around family, she seems to come out of her shell some, but then she disappears again. I just don't know what to do. I've been praying and praying that Papa would help us find a way to reach her, but... She paused again. It feels like he isn't listening. There it was. Papa was Nan's favorite name for God, and it expressed her delight in the intimate friendship she had with him. Honey, I'm sure God knows what he's doing. It will all work out. The words brought him no comfort, but he hoped they might ease the worry he could hear in her voice. I know, she sighed. I just wish he'd hurry up. "'Me, too,' was all Mac could think to say. "'Well, you and the kids stay put and stay safe "'and tell Arlene and Jimmy hi and thank them for me. "'Hopefully I will see you tomorrow.' "'Okay, love. "'I should go and help the others. "'Everyone's busy looking for candles in case the power goes out. "'You should probably do the same. "'There's some above the sink in the basement, "'and there's leftover stuffed bread bread dough in the fridge "'that you can heat up.' Are you sure you're okay? Yeah, my pride has hurt more than anything. We'll take it easy and hopefully we'll see you in the morning. All right, honey. Be safe and call me if you need anything. Bye. That was kind of a dumb thing to say, he thought as he hung up the phone. Kind of a manly dumb thing to kind of a manly dumb thing, as if he could help if they needed anything. Max sat and stared at the note it was confusing and painful, trying to sort out the swirling cacophony of disturbing emotions and dark images clouding his mind. A million thoughts traveling a million miles in an hour. Finally, he gave up, folded the note, slid it into a small tin box he kept on the desk, and switched off the light. Mac managed to find something to heat up in the microwave, Then he grabbed a couple of blankets and pillows and headed for the living room. A quick glance at the clock told him that Bill Moyer's show had just started, a favorite program that he tried never to miss. Moyer was one of a handful of people whom Mac would love to meet, a brilliant and outspoken man able to express intense compassion for both people and truth with unusual clarity. One of the stories tonight had something to do with oil man Boone Pickens, who was now starting to drill for water, of all things. Almost without thinking, and without taking his eyes off the television, Mac reached over to the end table, picked up a photo frame holding a picture of a little girl, and clutched it to his chest. With the other hand, he pulled the blankets up under his chin, and hunkered deeper into the sofa. Soon the sounds of gentle snoring filled the air as the media tube turned its attention to a piece on a high school senior in Zimbabwe who had been beaten for speaking out against his government. But Mac had already left the room to wrestle with his dreams. Maybe tonight there would be no nightmares, only visions, perhaps of ice and trees and gravity. Chapter 2 The Gathering Dark Nothing makes us so lonely as our secrets. Paul Tornier Sometime during the night, an unexpected Chinook blew through the Willamette Valley, freeing the landscape from the storm's icy grip, except for those things that lay hidden in the deepest shadows. Within 24 hours, it was early summer warm. Max slept late into the morning, one of those dreamless sleeps that seemed to pass in an instant. When he finally crawled off the sofa, he was somewhat chagrined to see that the ice follies had fizzled out so quickly, but delighted to see Nan and the kids when they showed up less than an hour later. First came the anticipated and considerable scolding for not putting his bloodied mess in the laundry room followed by an appropriate and satisfying amount of ooing and eyeing that accompanied her examination of his head wound. The attention pleased Mac immensely, and Nan soon had him cleaned up, patched up, and fed up. The note, though never far from his mind, was not mentioned. He still didn't know what to think of it, and he didn't want Nan included if it turned out to be some kind of cruel joke. Little distractions like the ice storm were a welcome, although brief, respite, from the haunting presence of his constant companion, the great sadness, as he referred to it shortly after the summer that Missy vanished, the great sadness had draped itself around Mac's shoulders like some invisible but almost tangible, tangibly heavy quilt. The weight of its presence dulled his eyes and stooped his shoulders, even his efforts to shake it off were exhausting as if his arms were sewn into its bleak folds of despair, and he had somehow become part of it. He ate, worked, loved, dreamed, and played in this garment of heaviness, weighed down as if he were wearing a laden bathrobe, trudging daily through the murky despondency that sucked the color out of everything, At times he could feel the great sadness slowly tightening around his chest and heart like the crushing coils of a constrictor, squeezing liquid from his eyes until he thought there no longer remained a reservoir. Other times he would dream that his feet were stuck in cloying mud as he caught brief glimpses of Missy running down the wooded path ahead of him, her red cotton summer dress gilded with wildflowers flashing among the trees she was completely oblivious to the dark shadow tracking her from behind. Although he frantically tried to scream warnings to her, no sound emerged and he was always too late and too impotent to save her. He would bolt upright in bed, sweat dripping from his tortured body, while waves of nausea and guilt and regret rolled over him like some surreal tidal flood, the story of Missy's disappearance is, unfortunately, not unlike others too often told. It all happened during Labor Day weekend, the summer's last hurrah before another year of school and autumn routines. Mac boldly decided to take the three younger children on a final camping trip to Wallow Wallowa Lake in northeastern Oregon. Nan was already booked at a continuing education class in Seattle, and the two older boys were back at college or count. Cal- or counseling at a summer camp, but Mac was confident that he possessed the right combination of outdoorsmanship and mothering skills. After all, Nan had taught him well the sense of adventure and camping f- and camping fever gripped everyone, and the place became a whirlwind of activity. If they had done it Mac's way, they would have simply backed a moving van up to the house. And shifted most of its contents for the long weekend. At one point in all the confusion, Mac decided he needed a break and settled himself in his daddy chair after shooing off Judas and the family cat. After shooing off Judas, the family cat. He was about to turn on the tube when Missy came running in, holding her little plexiglass box. Can I take my insect collection camping with us? asked Missy. You want to take your bugs along? Grunted Mac, not paying her much mind. Daddy, they're not bugs. They're insects. Look, I've got lots of them in here. Mac reluctantly turned his attention to his daughter, who, seeing him focus, started explaining the contents of her treasure box. box. See? There are two grasshoppers. And see on that leaf, there is my caterpillar. And somewhere, there she is. Do you see my ladybug? And I have a fly in here somewhere, too, and some ants. She, as she inventoried her collection, Mac tried his best to show attention, nodding along. So, Missy finished, can I take them along? Sure you can, honey. Maybe we can let them loose in the wild when we're out there. No, she can't, came a voice from the kitchen. Missy, you need to keep your collection at home, honey. Trust me, they're safer here. Nan stuck her head around the corner and lovingly frowned at Mac as he shrugged his shoulders. I tried, honey, he whispered to Missy. Grr, growled Missy. But knowing the battle was lost, she picked up her box and left. By Thursday night, the van was overloaded and the pull-behind tent trailer hitched up with lights and brakes tested. Early Friday, after one last lecture from Nan to her kids about safety, obedience, brushing teeth in the mornings, not picking up cats with white stripes down their backs, and all manner of things, they headed out. Nan north up Interstate 205 to Washington and Mac and the three amigos east on Interstate 84. The plan was to return the following Tuesday night just before the first day of school. The Columbia River Gorge is worth the trip by itself, with breathtaking, panoramas over, with breathtaking panoramas overseen by river-carved mesas standing sleepy guard in the late summer warmth. September and October can offer some of Oregon's best weather. Indian summer often sets in around Labor Day and hangs on until Halloween, when it quickly turns cold, wet, and nasty. This year was no exception. Traffic and weather cooperated wonderfully, and the crew hardly noticed the time and miles passing by. The foursome stopped at Multoma Falls to buy a coloring book and crayons for Missy and two inexpensive waterproof disposable cameras for Kate and Josh. They then decided to climb the short distance up the trail to the bridge facing the falls. There had once been a path that led around the main pool, and into a shallow cave behind the tumbling water but unfortunately it had been blocked off by the park authorities because of erosion. Missy loved it here and she begged her daddy to tell the legend of the beautiful Indian maid, the daughter of a chief of the Multahama tribe. It took some coaxing but Mac finally relented and retold the story as they all stared up into the midst, shrouding the falling cascade." The tale centered on a princess, the only child left to her aging father. The chief loved his daughter dearly and carefully picked out a husband for her, a young warrior chief of the Klatsop Klatsop tribe, whom he knew she loved. The two tribes came together to celebrate the days of the wedding feast, but before it could begin, terrible sickness began to spread among them, killing many the elders and the chiefs met to discuss what they could do about the wasting disease that was quickly decimating their warriors. The oldest medicine man among them spoke of how his own father, when aged and near death, had foretold of a terrible sickness that would kill their men, an illness that could be stopped only if a pure and innocent daughter of a chief would willingly give up her life for her people. In order to fulfill the prophecy, she must voluntarily climb to a cliff above the big river and from there jump to her death onto the rocks below. A dozen young women, all daughters of the various chiefs, were brought before the council. After considerable debate, the elders decided that they could not ask for such a precious sacrifice, especially for a legend they weren't sure was true. But the disease continued to spread unabated among the men and eventually the young warrior chief, the husband-to-be fell ill with the sickness. The princess who loved him knew in her heart that something had to be done, and after cooling his fever and kissing him softly on the forehead, she slipped away. It took all her might in the next day to reach the place spoken of in the legend, a towering cliff overlooking the big river and the lands beyond. After praying and giving herself to the great spirit, She fulfilled the prophecy by jumping without hesitation to her death on the rocks below. Back at the villages the next morning, those who had been sick arose well and strong. There was great joy and celebration until the young warrior discovered that his beloved bride was missing. As the awareness of what had happened spread rapidly among the people, many began the journey to the place where they knew they would find her. As they silently gathered around her broken body at the base of the cliff, her grief-stricken father cried out to the great spirit, asking that her sacrifice would always be remembered. At that moment, water began to fall from the place where she had jumped, turning into a fine mist that fell at their feet, slowly forming a beautiful pool. Missy usually loved the telling, almost as much as Mac did. It had all the elements of a true redemption story, not unlike the story of Jesus that she knew so well. It centered on a father who loved his only child and a sacrifice foretold by a prophet. Because of love, the child willingly gave up her life to save her betrothed and their tribes from certain death. But on this occasion, Missy didn't say a word when the story was finished. Instead, she immediately turned and headed for the van as if to say, Okay, I'm done here. Let's get going. They made a quick stop for some brunch and a potty break at Hood River and then got right back on the road, reaching La Grande by early afternoon. Here they left I-84 and took the Wallowa Lake Highway, which would take them the final 72 miles to the town of Joseph. The lake and campground they were headed for were only a few miles beyond Joseph, and after finding their sight, they all pitched in and had everything set up in short order— perhaps not exactly the way Nan would have preferred, but functional nonetheless. The first meal was a Phillips family tradition. Flank steak marinated in Uncle Joe's secret sauce. For dessert, they ate the brownies Nan had made the night before, topped with the vanilla ice cream they had packed away in dry ice. That evening, as he sat among three laughing children watching one of nature's greatest shows— Mac's heart was suddenly penetrated by unexpected joy. A sunset of brilliant colors and patterns played off the few clouds that had waited in the wings to become central actors in this unique presentation. He was a rich man, he thought to himself, in all the ways that mattered. By the time supper was cleaned up, night had fallen. The deer, routine day visitors and sometimes a serious nuisance, had gone wherever deer go to bed down. De- go to bed down. Their shift was picked up by the night troublemakers, raccoons, squirrels, and chipmunks that traveled in roving bands looking for any container left slightly open. The Phillips campers knew this from past experience. The first night they had ever spent in these campgrounds had cost them four dozen Rice Krispies treats, a box of chocolates, and all their peanut butter cookies. Before it got too late, the four went on a short hike away from the campfires and lanterns to a dark and quiet spot where they could lie down and gaze in wonder at the Milky Way, stunning and intense when undiminished by the pollution of city lights." Mac could lie and gaze up into that vastness for hours. He felt so incredibly small, yet comfortable with himself. Of all the places he sensed the presence of God out here, of all the places he sensed the presence of God out here, surrounded by nature and under the stars, was one of the most tangible. He could almost hear the song of worship as th- worship He could almost hear the song of worship, they sang to their creator. And in his reluctant heart, he joined in as best he could. Then it was back to the campsite, and after several trips to the facilities, Mac tucked the three in turn into the safety and security of their sleeping bags. He prayed briefly with Josh before moving across to where Kate and Missy lay waiting. But when it came Missy's turn to pray, she wanted to talk instead. Daddy, how come she had to die? It took Mac a moment to figure out who Missy was talking about, suddenly realizing that the Multnomah princess must have been on her mind since they had stopped earlier. Honey, she didn't have to die. She chose to die to save her people. They were very sick, and she wanted them to be healed. There was silence, and Mac knew that another question was forming in the darkness. Did it really happen? This time the question was from Kate, obviously interested in the conversation. Did what really happen? Did the Indian princess really die? Is the story true? Mac thought before he spoke. I don't know, Kate. It's a legend, and sometimes legends are stories that teach a lesson. So it didn't really happen, asked Missy. It might have, sweetie. Sometimes legends are built from real stories, things that really happen. Again, silence. Then, so is Jesus a dying legend? Matt could hear the wheels turning in Kate's mind. No, honey, that's a true story. And do you know what? I think the Indian princess story is probably true also. Mac waited while his girls processed their thoughts. Missy was next to ask, Is the Great Spirit another name for God? You know, Jesus, Papa? Mac smiled in the dark. Obviously, Nan's nightly prayers were having an effect. I would suppose so. It's a good name for God because he is a spirit and he is great. Then how come he's so mean? Ah, here was the question that had been brewing. What do you mean, Missy? Well, the great spirit makes the princess jump off the cliff and makes Jesus die on a cross. That seems pretty mean to me. Mac was stuck. He wasn't sure how to answer. At six and a half years old, Missy was asking questions that wise people had wrestled with for centuries. Sweetheart, Jesus didn't think his daddy was mean. He thought his daddy was full of love and loved him very much. His daddy didn't make him die. Jesus chose to die because he and his daddy love you and me and everyone in the world. He saved us from our sickness, just like the princess. (coughs) now now came along now came the longest silence and mac was beginning to wonder if the girls had fallen asleep just as he was about to lean over and kiss them good night a little voice with a noticeable quiver broke into the quiet daddy yes honey will i ever have to jump off a cliff Max's heart broke as he understood what this conversation had really been about. He gathered his little girl into his arms and pulled her close. With his own voice, a little huskier than usual, he gently replied, No, honey, I will never ask you to jump off a cliff. Never, ever, ever. Then will God ever ask me to jump off a cliff? No, Missy, he would never ask you to do anything like that. She snuggled deeper into his arms. Okay, hold me close. Good night, Daddy. I love you. And she was out, drifting deep into a sound sleep with only good and sweet dreams. After a few minutes, Mac placed her gently back in her sleeping bag. You okay, Kate? He whispered as he kissed her good night. Yep, she whispered. Daddy, what, sweetheart? She asks good questions, doesn't she? She sure does. She's a special little girl. You both are, you both are, except you're not so little anymore. Now get some sleep. We have a big day ahead of us. Sweet dreams, darling. You too, Daddy. I love you tons. I love you too, with all my heart. Good night. Mac zipped up the trailer on his way out blew his nose, and wiped away the tears that still remained on his cheeks. He prayed a silent thanks to God and then went to brew some coffee. Chapter 3 The Tipping Point The soul is healed by being with children. Fyodor Dostoevsky Wallowa Lake State Park in Oregon and its surrounding area has been well referred to as the Little Switzerland of America. Wild rugged mountains rise to almost 10,000 feet and in between them are hidden innumerable valleys full of streams, hiking trails and high elevation meadows overflowing with sprays of wildflowers. Wallowa Lake is the gateway into the Eagle Cap Wilderness Area and Hells Canyon National Recreation Area which sports the deepest gorge in North America. Carved out over centuries by the Snake River, it reaches a depth of nearly two miles, top to bottom, in places, and ten miles at times from rim to rim. Seventy-five percent of the recreation area is roadless, with more than 900 miles of hiking trails. Once the domain of the prevailing Nez Pierce tribe The remnants of their presence are scattered throughout this wilderness, as well as those of white settlers traveling through on their way to the west. The nearby town of Joseph was named for a powerful tribal chief whose Indian name meant thunder rolling down the mountain. This area is home to an abundance of flora and wildlife including elk, bear, deer, and mountain goat. The presence of rattlers especially as you get closer to the Snake River, is reason enough to hike cautiously, should you decide to venture off trail. Wallowa Lake itself is five miles long, and one mile wide. uh, One mile wide formed, some say, by glaciers 9 million years ago, it now sits about a mile from the town of Joseph. Um, it now sits about a mile from the town of Joseph at an elevation of 4,400 feet. The water though the water, though catch your breath cold most of the year, is comfortable enough by the end of summer for a leisurely swim at least close into the shore. Sacagawea, at almost 10,000 feet, looks down on this blue jewel from her snow-capped and timbered heights. Mac and the kids filled the next three days with fun and leisure. Missy, seemingly satisfied with her daddy's answers, never again raised the issue of the princess, even when one of their day hikes took them by some precipitous precipu- precipitous cliffs they spent a few hours traveling the lakeshore in paddle boats tried lakeshore and paddle boats tried their best to win a prize at miniature golf and even went horseback trail riding after a morning trip to the historic wade ranch that sits about halfway between joseph and enterprise they spent the afternoon visiting the little shop's in the town of Joseph itself. Back at the lake, Josh and Kate raced each other around the go-kart track. Josh came away the winner, but Kate was able to regain bragging rights later that afternoon when she landed three good-sized lake trout. Missy caught one with a hook and worm, but neither Josh nor Mac could claim a single tug on their fancier lures. Sometime during the weekend, two other families seemed to magically weave themselves into the Phillipses' world. As often happens, friendships had been struck up initially among the children and then between the adults. Josh had been especially keen getting to know the Doucettes, whose eldest, Amber, just happened to be a cute young lady about his age. Kate seriously enjoyed tormenting her older brother about the entire matter and he would reward her taunting by stomping off to the tent trailer, all bluster and gripe. Amber had a sister, Emmy, who was only a year younger than Kate, and the two spent a lot of time together. Vicky and Emile Doucette had traveled from their home in Colorado, where Emile worked as an agent for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Office of Law Enforcement, and Vicky stayed home to manage the household which included their surprise son, JJ, now almost a year old. The Doucettes introduced Mac and his children to a Canadian couple they had met earlier, Jesse and Sarah Madison. These two had an easy, unpretentious manner, and Mac took an instant liking to them. Both catered as independent consultants, Jesse in Human Resources and Sarah in Change Management. Missy gravitated immediately to Sarah, and both were often together down at the Doucette campsite, helping Vicky with JJ. Monday broke gloriously, and the entire entourage was excited about its plans to take the Wallowa Lake tramway to the top of Mount Howard, 8,150 feet above sea level. When it was constructed in 1970, the tramway had the steepest vertical lift in North America, with a cable length of almost four miles. The trip to the summit takes about 15 minutes in a tram car that dangles anywhere from 3 feet to 120 feet off the ground. Instead of packing a lunch, Jesse and Sarah insisted on treating everyone to a meal at the summit grill. The plan was to eat as soon as they reached the top and then spend the rest of the day hiking to the five viewpoints and overlooks. Armed with cameras, sunglasses, water bottles, and sunscreen, they headed off by mid-morning. As intended, they consumed a veritable feast of hamburger, a varietable feast of hamburgers, fries, and shakes at the grill. The elevation must have spurred their appetites. Even Missy was able to down an entire burger and most of the trimmings. After lunch, they hiked to each of the nearby lookouts, the longest trail being from the Valley Overlook to the Snake River Country and Seven Devils Lookout. A little more than three-quarters of a mile. From the Wallowa Valley Overlook, they could see as far as the towns of Joseph, Enterprise, Lostine, and even Wallowa. From the Royal Purple Overlook and the Summit Overlook, they enjoyed the crystal-clear view looking into the states of Washington and Idaho. Some even thought they could see across the Idaho Panhandle into Montana. By late afternoon, everyone was tired and happy. Missy, whom Jesse had carried on his shoulders to to the last couple of lookouts, was now falling asleep in her father's arms as they bumped and whirred down from the summit. The four young people, along with Sarah, had their faces plastered against the windows, ooing and aahing at the wonders to be seen along the descent. The Doucettes sat holding hands in quiet conversation while J.J. slept in his father's arms. This is one of those rare and precious moments, thought Mac, that catches you by surprise and almost takes your breath away. If only Nan could be here, it truly would be perfect. He shifted Missy's weight to a more comfortable position for her now For her, now that she was totally out, and pulled back the hair from her face to look at her. The grime and sweat of the day had done nothing but strangely enhance her innocence and beauty. Why do they have to grow up? he mused and kissed her on the forehead the evening the three families combined their food for a last supper together taco salad was the entree with lots of f- fresh vegetables and dip and somehow sarah had been able to whip up a chocolate dessert with layers of whipped cream mousse brownies and other delights that had everyone feeling decadent and satisfied with the remains of supper uh, with the remains of supper Stashed back in the coolers and the dishes cleaned and put away, the adults sat sipping coffee around a blazing campfire while Emil shared his adventures of breaking up endangered animal smuggling rings and explaining how they caught poachers and others who hunted illegally. He was a skilled storyteller and his vocation offered a deep resource for some hilarious tales. It was all fascinating and Mac realized again that there was much in the world about which he was naive. As the evening wound down, Emil and Vicky headed for bed first with their sleepy-eyed baby. Jesse and Sarah volunteered to stay a while before walking the Doucette girls back to their campsite. The three Phillips' kids and two Doucettes immediately disappeared into the safety of the tent trailer to share stories and secrets. As often happens when a campfire burns long, the conversation turned from the humorous to the more personal. Sarah seemed eager to ask Mac about the rest of his family, especially Nan. So what is she like, Mackenzie? Mac loved any opportunity to brag about his Nan. Well, besides being beautiful... And I'm not just saying that. She really is beautiful inside and out. He looked up sheepishly to see them both smiling at him. He was really missing her and was glad the night shadows shadows hid his embarrassment. Her full name is Nanette, but almost no one calls her anything but Nan. She has quite a reputation in the medical community, at least in the Northwest. She's a nurse and works with oncology patients, uh, cancer patients, Who are terminal. It's tough work, but she really loves it. Anyway, she's written some papers and has been a speaker at a couple of conferences. Really? Sarah prompted. What does she speak on? She helps people think through their relationship with God in the face of their own death, Mac answered. I'd love to hear more about that, encouraged Jesse as he stirred up the fire with a stick, causing it to bloom with renewed vigor. Bigger. mac hesitated as much as he felt unusually at ease with these two he didn't really know them and the conversation had gotten a little deeper than he was comfortable with he searched quickly for a short answer to Jessie's interest nan's a lot better at that than i am i guess she thinks about god differently than most folks she even calls him papa because of the closeness of their relationship if that makes sense Of course it does, exclaimed Sarah as Jesse nodded. Is that a family thing, referring to God as Papa? No, said Mac, laughing. The kids have picked it up some, but I'm not comfortable with it. It just seems a little too familiar for me. Anyway, Nan has a wonderful father, so I think it's just easier for her. It had slipped out, and Mac inwardly shuddered, hoping no one had noticed, but Jesse was looking right at him. Your dad wasn't too wonderful, he asked gently. Yeah, Mac paused. I guess you could say he was not too wonderful. He died when I was just a kid of natural causes. Mac laughed, but the sound was empty. He looked at the two. He drank himself to death. We're sorry, Sarah said for both of them, and Mac could sense that she meant it. Well, he said, forcing another laugh. Life is hard sometimes, but I have a lot to be thankful for. An awkward silence followed as Mac wondered what it was about these two that seemed to penetrate his defenses so easily. He was rescued seconds later by a flurry of children pouring out of the trailer and into their midst. Much to Kate's glee, she and Emmy had caught Josh and Amber holding hands in the dark, and now she wanted the whole world to know. By this time Josh was so smitten that he was willing to put up with any harassment and took what she dished out in stride. He couldn't have wiped the silly grin off his face even if he tried. Both Madison's hugged Mac and his children, both Madison's hugged Mac and his children, good night, with Sarah giving him an especially tender squeeze before she left. Then, hand in hand with Amber and Emmy, they headed off into the darkness toward the Doucette toward the Doucette site. Mac watched them until he could no longer hear their night whispers and the swaying of their flashlight disappeared from sight. He smiled to himself and turned to to herd his own brood in the direction of their sleeping bags. Prayers were said all around, followed by goodnight kisses and giggles from kate in low conversation with her older brother who would occasionally burst out in harsh whispers so everyone could hear cut it out kate Er, i mean it you're such a brat and eventually silence mac packed up what he could by the light of the lanterns and soon decided to leave the rest till daylight they weren't planning to leave until early afternoon anyway He brewed his final nightly cup of coffee and sat sipping it in front of the fire that had burned itself down to a flickering mass of red-hot coals. It was so easy to get lost inside such a bed of glowing, undulating embers. He was alone, yet not alone. Wasn't that a line from the Bruce Cockburn song, Rumors of Glory? He wasn't sure, but if he remembered he would look it up when he got home. As he sat mesmerized by the fire and wrapped in its warmth, he prayed, mostly prayers of thanksgiving. He had been given so much. Blessed was probably the right word. He was content, at rest, and full of peace. Mac did not know it then, but within 24 hours, his prayers would change drastically. The next morning, though sunny and warm, didn't start off so well. Mac rose early to surprise the kids with a wonderful breakfast, but he burned two fingers while trying to f- free flapjacks that had stuck to the griddle. In response to the searing pain, he knocked over the stove and griddle and dropped the bowl of pancake batter onto the sandy ground. The kids, startled awake by the clatter and under-the-breath explosives had st- stuck their heads out of their tent trailer to see what all the commotion was about. They began to giggle as soon as they grasped the situation. But one, hey, it's not funny, but one, hey, it's not funny from Mac, and they ducked back into the safety of the tent, still tittering from their hideout while they watched through the mesh windows. So, so breakfast, instead of the feast Mac had intended, was cold cereal with half and half, since the last of the milk had gone into the pancake batter. Max spent the next hour trying to organize the site with two fingers stuck in a glass of ice water, which had to be refreshed f- frequently with chips that Josh broke off the ice block with the backside of a spoon. Word must have gotten out because Sarah Madison showed up with burn first aid, and within minutes of having his fingers slathered in the whitish liquid, he felt the stinging rec- Sting recide, recede. About that time, Josh and Kate, having completed their ordered chores, showed up to ask if they could go out in the Doucette's canoe one last time. They promised to wear life jackets. After the initial mandatory no and the required amount of begging from the kids, especially Kate, Mac finally gave in, reminding them once again of the rules of canoe safety and conduct. He wasn't too concerned. Their campsite was only a stone's throw from the lake and they promised to stay close to shore. Mac would be able to keep an eye on them while he continued packing up the camp. Missy was busy at the table, coloring in the book from Multoma Falls. She's just too cute, Mac thought, glancing in her direction as he worked to clean up the mess he had made earlier. She was dressed in the only clean thing she had left a little red sundress with embroidered wildflowers, a purchase from their first day's trip into the town of Joseph. About 15 minutes later, Mac looked up when he heard a familiar voice calling, Daddy! from the direction of the lake. It was Kate, and she and her brother were paddling like pros out on the water. Both were obediently wearing their life jackets, and he waved at them. It is remarkable how a seemingly insignificant action or event can change entire lives. Katie, lifting her paddle to wave back in response, lost her balance and tipped the canoe. There was a frozen look of terror on her face as, almost in silence and slow motion, it rolled over. Josh frantically leaned to try to balance, but it was too late and he disappeared from sight in the midst of the splash. Mac was already headed for the water's edge, not intending to go in, but to be near when they bobbed up. Kate was up first, sputtering and crying, but there was no sign of Josh. Then suddenly an eruption of water and legs, and Mac knew instantly something was terribly wrong. To his amazement, all the instincts he had honed as a teenage lifeguard came roaring back. In a matter of seconds, he hit the water, shoes and shirt off. He didn't even notice the icy shock as he began racing the 50 feet out toward the overturned canoe, ignoring for the moment the terrified sobbing of his daughter. She was safe. His primary focus was Josh. Taking a deep breath, he dove under. The water, in spite of all the churning, was still fairly clear with visibility about three feet. He found Josh quickly and also discovered why he was in trouble. One of the straps of on his life vest had gotten tangled in the canoe webbing. Try as he might, he couldn't yank it free, either, so he tried to signal Josh to push himself deeper inside the canoe where the breathable air was where the breathable air was trapped. but the poor boy was panicky, straining was panicking, straining against the strap that was keeping him caught under the canoe rim and underwater. water. Mac surfaced, yelled at Kate to swim to shore, gulped what air he could, and went under a second time by his third dive. And knowing that time was running out, Mac realized that he could either keep trying to free Josh from the vest or flip the canoe. Since Josh, in his panic, was not letting anyone near him, Mac chose the leader. Whether it was God and angels or God and adrenaline, he would never know for sure. But on only his second attempt, he succeeded in ruling the canoe over, freeing Josh from his tether. The jacket, finally able to do what it was designed for, now kept the boy's face above water. Mac surfaced behind Josh, who was limp and unconscious, blood oozing from a gash on his head where the canoe had banged him. As Mac had righted it, the canoe had banged him as Mac had righted it. He immediately began mouth-to-mouth on his son as best as he could, while others who had heard the commotion arrived to pull him and the canoe with the attached vest toward the shallows. Oblivious to the shouts around him, people barked instructions and questions. Okay, um... All right. So, okay. Oblivious to the shouts around him as people barked instructions and questions, Mac focused on his task, his own panic building inside his chest. Just as his feet touched solid ground, Josh began to cough and throw up water and breakfast. A huge cheer erupted from everyone gathered, but Mac couldn't have cared less. Overwhelmed with relief and the adrenaline rush of a narrow escape he began to cry and then suddenly Kate was sobbing with her arms around his neck and everyone was laughing and crying and hugging. Somehow they all made it to shore. Among those who had been drawn to the scene by the panic and noise were Jesse Madison and Emile Duset. Through the mayhem of cheers and relief Matt could hear Emile's voice like the repetitious chant of a rosary whispering again and again. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It was his canoe. It could have been his children. Mac found him, wrapped his arms around the younger man, and emphasized strongly in his ear, Stop it. This wasn't your fault and everyone's okay. Emil began to sob, emotions suddenly freed from behind a dam of pent-up guilt and fear. A potential crisis had been averted or so Mac thought. Chapter Four, The Great Sadness. Sadness is a wall between two gardens. Khalil Gibran. Mac stood on the shore, doubled over and still trying to catch his breath. It took a few minutes before he even thought about Missy. Remembering that she had been coloring in her book at the table, he walked up the bank to where he could see the campsite, but there was no sign of her. His pace quickened as he hurried to the tent trailer, calling her name as calmly as he could manage. No response. She was not there. Even though his heart skipped a beat, he rationalized that in the confusion, someone had to have seen her, probably Sarah Madison or Vicky Doucette or one of the older kids. Not wanting to appear over-anxious or panicky, he, f- found, he found and soberly informed his two new friends that he couldn't find Missy and asked if they would check with their families. Both quickly headed off to their respective campsites. Jesse returned first to announce that Sarah had not seen Missy at all that morning. He and Mac then headed for the Doucette site, but before they reached it, Emile came hurrying toward them, a look of apprehension written clearly on his face. No one has seen Missy today, and we don't know where Amber is either. Maybe they're together. There was a hint of dread in Emile's question. I'm sure that's it, said Mac, trying to reassure himself and Emile at the same time. Where do you think they might be? Why don't we check the bathrooms and the showers, suggested Jesse. Good idea, said Mac. I'll check the one nearest our site, the one that my kids use. Why don't you and Emil check the one between your sites? They nodded, and Mac headed at a slow trot toward the closest showers, noticing for the first time that he was barefoot and shirtless. What a sight I must be, he thought. He probably would have chuckled It chuckled. If his mind wasn't so focused on Missy, arriving at the restrooms, he asked a teenager emerging from the woman's section if she had seen a little girl in a red dress inside or maybe two girls. She told him that she didn't notice she told him that she hadn't noticed but would look again in less than a minute. She was back shaking her head. Thank you anyway, said Mac, and he headed around the back of the building where the showers were located. As he rounded the corner he began calling loudly for missy mac could hear water running but no one responded wondering if missy might be in one of the showers he began pounding on each he began pounding on each until he got a response he succeeded only in severely scaring a poor elderly lady when his door when his door banging accidentally opened her shower stall she shrieked And Mac, with profuse apologies, quickly shut the door and hurried on to the next one. Six shower stalls and no Missy. He checked the men's toilet stalls and showers, trying not to think about why he would even bother looking there. She was nowhere and he jogged back toward Emile's, unable to pray anything except, Oh God, help me find her. Oh God, please help me find her. When she saw him, Vicky rushed to meet him. She had been trying not to cry, but couldn't help it as they embraced. Suddenly, Mac desperately wanted Nan to be there. She would she would know what to do. At least she would know what to do, at least what the right thing was. He felt so lost. Sarah, Sarah has Josh and Kate back at your campsite. So don't worry about them, Vicky told him between sobs. Oh, God, Mac thought, having totally forgotten about his other two. What kind of father am I? Although he was relieved that Sarah had them, he now wished even more that Nan were there, that Nan were here. Just then, Emil and Jesse burst into camp, Emil appearing relieved and Jesse looking as tense as as a wound up spring. We found her, exclaimed Emil, his face lighting up, then turning somber as he realized what he had implied. I mean, we found Amber. She just came back from taking a shower at this other place that still had hot water. She said she told her mom, but Vicky probably didn't hear her. His voice trailed off. But we didn't find Missy, Jessie added quickly, answering the most important question. Amber hasn't seen her today either. Emil, all business now, took charge. Mac, we need to contact the campground authorities immediately and get the word out to find Missy. Maybe in the ruckus and excitement she got scared and confused and just wandered away and got lost. Or maybe she was trying to find us and took a wrong turn. Do you have a picture of her? Maybe there's a copy machine at the office and we could make a few copies and save some time. Yeah, I have a snapshot of her in my wallet. He reached for his back pocket and for a second panicked as he found nothing there. The thought flashed through his mind of his wallet sitting at the bottom of Wallowa Lake. Then he remembered that it was still in his van after yesterday's trip up the tram. The three headed back to Mac's site. Jesse ran ahead to let Sarah know that Amber was safe, but that that Missy's whereabouts were still unknown. Arriving at camp, Mac hugged and encouraged, encouraged mac hugged and and encouraged josh and kate as best he could trying to appear calm for their sakes changing out of his wet clothes he threw on a t-shirt and jeans some clean dry socks and a pair of running shoes sierra promised that she and vicky would keep his two older with them and whispered that she was praying for him and missy mac gave her a quick hug and thanked her and after kissing his children, he joined the other two men as they jogged toward the campground office. Word of the Water Rescue had reached the little two-room camp headquarters ahead of them, and everyone there was in high spirits. This changed quickly as three took turns explaining Missy's disappearance. Fortunately, the office had a photocopier, and Mac enlarged half a dozen pictures of Missy, hanging handing them around the wallowa lake campground has 215 sites divided into five loops and three group areas the young assistant manager jeremy bellamy volunteered to help canvas so they divided the camp into four areas and each headed out armed with a map missy's picture and an office walkie-talkie each headed out. Arm, they each headed out, with, armed with a map, Missy's picture, and an office walkie-talkie. One assistant with a walkie-talkie also went back to Mac's site to report in if Missy turned up. If Missy turned up there, it was slow, methodical work—much too slow for Mac. But he knew this was the most logical way to find her if, if she was still on the campgrounds. As he walked between tents and trailers, he was praying and promising. He knew in his heart that promising things to God was rather dumb and irrational, but he couldn't help it. He was desperate to get Missy back, and surely God knew where she was. Many campers were either not at their sights or in the final stages of packing up to head home. No one he asked had seen Missy or anyone looking like her periodically the search parties checked in with the office to get an update on the progress if any that each was making nothing at all until almost two in the afternoon mac was finishing his his section when the call came in on the walkie-talkies jeremy who had taken the area nearest the entrance thought he had something emile instructed them to put a mark on their maps showing where each had left off and then he gave them the site number where Jeremy had called from. Mac was the last to arrive, and he walked in on an intense conversation involving Emil, Jeremy, and a third young man Mac did not recognize. Emil quickly brought Mac up to speed, introducing him to Virgil Thomas, a city boy from California who had been camping all summer in the area with some buddies. Virgil and his friends had crashed after partying late into the night, and he had been the only one up who saw an old military green truck heading out the entrance and down the road toward Joseph. About what time was that? Mac asked. Like I told him, Virgil said, pointing his thumb at Jeremy. It was before noon. I'm not sure how much before noon, though. I'm not sure how much before noon, though. I was kind of hung over, and we really haven't been paying much attention to clocks since we got here. Pushing the picture of Missy in front of the young man, Mac asked sharply, Do you think you saw her? When the other fellow first showed me that picture, she didn't she di- didn't look familiar, Virgil answered, looking again at the photo. But then when he said that she was wearing a bright red dress, I remembered that the little girl in the green truck was wearing red And she was either laughing or Bellerin. I couldn't really tell. And then it looked like the guy slapped her or pushed her down. I suppose he could have been just playing too. Mac felt paralyzed. The information was overwhelming to him. But unfortunately, it was the only thing they had heard that made any sense. It explained why they had found no trace of Missy but everything in him did not want it to be true. He turned and started to run toward the office, but he was halted by Emile's voice. Mac, stop. We've already radioed the office and contacted the sheriff and Joseph. They're sending someone here right away and putting out an APB on the truck. As he finished speaking, as if on cue, two patrol cars pulled into the campgrounds. The first headed directly for the office while the other turned into the section where they all stood waiting. Mac waved the officer down and hurried to meet him as he emerged from his vehicle. A young man who looked to be in his late 20s introduced himself as Officer Dalton and began taking their statements. The next hours saw a massive escalation in response to Missy's disappearance. An all-points bulletin was sent out as far west as Portland, east to Boise, Idaho, and north to Spokane, Washington. Police officers and Joseph set up a roadblock on the Imnaha Highway, which led out of Joseph and deeper into the Hells Canyon National Recreation Area. If the child abductor had taken Missy up the Imnaha, only one of many directions he could have gone, The police figured they could get pertinent information by questioning those coming out. Their resources were limited, and rangers in the area were also contacted to be on the lookout. The Phillips' campsite was cornered off as a crime scene, and everyone in the vicinity was questioned. Virgil offered as much detail as he could about the truck and its occupants, and the resulting description was flashed out to all relevant agencies. The FBI field offices in Portland, Seattle, and Denver were put on notice. Nan had been called and was on her way, being driven by her best friend Mary Ann. Even tracking dogs were brought, even tracking dogs were brought in. but Missy's trail ended in the nearby parking lot, increasing the likelihood that Virgil's story was accurate after forensic specialist had combed through the campsite. Officer Dalton asked Mac to re-enter the area and carefully carefully look to see if anything was out of place or different from what he remembered. Although already exhausted by the emotions of the day, Mac was desperate to do anything to help and deliberately focused his mind to try to remember whatever he could about the morning. Cautiously, so as not to disturb anything, he retraced his steps. What he would give for a do-over a chance to have this day start again from the beginning. He would be glad to burn his fingers and drop the pancake batter all over again, if only he could take back the events that followed. He turned back to his assigned task, but nothing seemed to be different from what he remembered. Nothing had changed. He came to the table where Missy had been busy. The book was open to the page she had been coloring, a half-finished picture of the Multima Indian princess. The crayons The crayons were also there, although Missy's favorite color red was missing. He began to look around on the ground to see where it might have fallen. If you're looking for the red crown, crayon, if you're looking for the red crayon, we found it over there by the tree, said Dalton, pointing toward the parking lot. She probably dropped it when she was struggling with his voice trailed off. How can you tell she was struggling? Mac demanded. The officer hesitated but then spoke almost reluctantly. We found one of her shoes near there in the bushes where it was probably kicked off. You weren't here at the time so we asked your son to identify it. The image of his daughter fighting off some perverted monster was like a fist to the stomach. Almost succumbing to the sudden blackness that threatened to smother him, Mac leaned on the table to keep from passing out or throwing up. It was then that he noticed a ladybug pin sticking in the coloring book. He snapped to awareness as if someone had opened smelling salts under his nose. Whose is that? he asked Dalton, pointing to the pin. Whose is what? This ladybug pin. Who put that there? We just assumed it was Missy's. Are you telling me that pin was not there this morning? I'm positive, asserted Mac adamantly. She doesn't own anything like that. I'm absolutely positive that it was not here this morning. Officer Dalton was already on his radio, and within minutes, forensics was back and had taken the pin into custody. Dalton took Mac aside and explained, If what you say is correct, then we have to assume that Missy's assailant left it here on purpose. He paused before adding, Mr. Phillips, this could be good news or bad. I don't understand, responded Mac. The officer again hesitated, trying to decide whether he should tell Mac what he was thinking. He searched for the right words. Well, the good news is that we might get some evidence off of it. It's the only thing we have so far linking him to the scene. And the bad news? Mac held his breath. Well, the bad news, and I'm not saying that this is the case here, but guys who leave something like this usually have a purpose in leaving it. And it usually means that they've done this before. What are you saying, Mac snapped, that this guy is some kind of serial killer? Is this some sort of mark he leaves behind to identify himself, like he's marking his territory or something? Mac was getting angry, and it was evident by the look on Dalton's face that he was sorry for even mentioning it. But before Mac could blow, Dalton received an incoming call on his belt radio, patching him through to the FBI field office in Portland, Oregon. Mack refused to leave and listened as a woman identified herself as a special agent. She asked Dalton to describe the pin in detail. Mack followed the officer to where the forensic team had set up a work area. Holding the Ziploc bag in which the pin had been secured, Dalton concentrated on describing it as the best he could while Mac eavesdropped from a position slightly behind the group. It's a ladybug stick pin that was stuck through some pages of a coloring book, like one of those pins a woman would wear on her lapel, I think. Please describe the, co- Please describe the colors and the number of dots in the ladybug, directed the voice over the radio. Let's see, said Dalton, with his eyes almost up to the pouch. The head is black with a... Uh, ladybug head, and the body is red, with black edges and divisions. There are two black dots on the left side of the body as you look down from above, with the head at the top. Does that make sense? Perfectly. Please go on, the voice said patiently. And on the right side of the ladybug, there are three dots, so five in all. There was a pause. Are you sure there are five dots?' Yes, ma'am, there are five dots. He looked up and saw Mac, who had moved to the other side to see better, made eye contact and shrugged his shoulders as if to ask, Who cares how many dots? Okay, now, Officer Dabney. Dalton, ma'am, Tommy da- Dalton, ma'am, Tommy Dalton. He looked up at Mac again and rolled his eyes. Sorry, of- sorry, Officer Dalton. Would you please turn over the pen and tell me what is on the bottom or underside of the ladybug. Dalton turned the patch over and looked carefully. There is something here engraved on the bottom. Special agent. There is something here engraved on the bottom, special agent. Uh, I didn't get your name exactly. Wachowski. Spelled just like it sounds. Is it some letters or numbers? Well, let me see. Yeah, I think you're right. It looks like some kind of model number. Um, C. K. One four six, I believe. Yeah, Charlie. Kilo. Wait, I believe. Yeah, Charlie Kilo one four six. It's tough to make out through the baggie. There was silence on the other end. Mac whispered to Dalton ask her why or what that means dalton hesitated and then complied again there was ex- there was an extended silence on the other end wakowski are you there yeah i'm here suddenly the voice sounded tired and hollow hey dalton are you someplace private where you can talk mac nodded with exaggeration and dalton got the message hold on a sec He put down the pouch with the pin and moved outside the area, allowing Mac to follow. Dalton was already way beyond protocol with him anyway. Yep, I am now. So tell me, what's the scoop on this ladybug, he inquired. We've been trying to catch this guy for almost four years, tracking him across more than nine states now. He's been continually moving west. He's been nicknamed the Little Lady Killer but we have never released the ladybug detail to the press or anyone else, so please keep that on the down-low. We believe he's responsible for abducting and killing at least four children, so far all girls, all under the age of 10. Each time he adds a dot to the ladybug, so this would be number five. He always leaves the same pin somewhere at the kidnapping scene, all with the same model number like he bought a box of them, but we've had no luck tracking down where they originally came from we haven't found one of the bodies of any of those four little girls and although forensics has come up with nothing we have good reason to believe that none of the girls have survived every crime has taken place at or near a camping area with a state park or reserve close by the perpetrator seems to be an expert woodsman and mountaineer in every case he has left us absolutely nothing Except the pin. What about the car? We have a pretty good description of the green truck he left in. Oh, you'll probably find it all right. If this is our guy, it will have been stolen a day or two ago, repainted, full of outdoor gear, and it will be wiped clean. As he listened to Dalton's conversation with Special Agent Wachowski, Mac felt the last of his hope draining away. He slumped to the ground and buried his face in his hands. Was there ever a man as tired as he was at this moment? For the first time since Missy's disappearance, he allowed himself to consider the range of horrendous possibilities. And once it started, he couldn't stop. The imaginations of good and evil all mixed up together in a soundless but terrifying parade. Even when he tried to shake free of the images, he couldn't. Some were horrible, ghastly snapshots of torture and pain, of monsters and demons, of the deepest, dark, with barbed wire fingers and razor touches, of Missy screaming for her daddy and no one answering. And mixed throughout these horrors were flashes of other memories. The toddler with her Missy sippy cup, as they had called it, the two-year-old drunk from eating too much chocolate cake, and the one image so recently made as she fell asleep safely in her daddy's arms. Unyielding images. What would he say at her funeral? What could he possibly say to Nan? How could this have happened? God, how could this have happened? A few hours later, Mac and his two children drove to the hotel and Joseph that had become the staging grounds for the growing search. The proprietors had kindly offered them a complimentary room, and as he moved a few of his things into it, in, into it, his exha- exhaustion began to get the better of him. He had gratefully accepted Officer Dalton's offer to take his children down to a local diner for some food. And now, sitting down on the edge of the bed, he was swept helplessly away in the unrelenting and merciless grip of growing despair, slowly rocking back and forth. Soul-shredding sobs and groans clawed to the surface from the core of his being, and that is how Nan found him. Two broken lovers, they held each other and wept as Mac poured out his sorrow, and Nan tried to hold him in one piece. That night, Mac slept in fits and started. That night, Mac slept in fits and starts as the images continued to pound him like relentless waves on a rocky shore. Finally, he gave up just before the sun began to issue hints of its arrival. He hardly noticed. In one day he had spent a year's worth of emotions, and now he felt numb, adrift in a suddenly meaningless world that felt as if it would be forever gray. After considerable protest from Nan, they agreed it would be best for her to head home with Josh and Kate. Mac would remain to help in any way he could and to be close just in case. He simply couldn't leave, not when she might still be out there needing him. Word had quickly spread, and friends arrived to help him pack up the site and cart everything back to Portland. His boss called, offering any support he could and encouraging Mac to stay as long as he needed. Everyone knew, everyone they knew was praying. Reporters with their photographers in tow began showing up during the morning. Mac didn't want to face them or their cameras, but after some coaching, he spent time answering their questions in the parking lot, knowing the exposure could go a long way in aiding the search for Missy. He had kept quiet about Officer Dalton's overstepping his protocol, and Dalton returned the favor by keeping him inside the information loop. Jesse and Sarah, willing to do anything, made themselves constantly available to the family and friends who came to help. They lifted the huge burden of communication with the public from both Nan and Mac and seemed to be everywhere as they skillfully wove some threads of peace into the turbulence of emotions. Emile Doucette's parents arrived after driving all the way from Denver to help Vicki. Emile Doucette's parents arrived after driving all the way from Denver to help Vicky and the kids get home safely. Emile, with the blessings of his superiors, had decided to stay behind to do what he could with the park service to help Mac stay informed on that side of things. Nan, who had bonded quickly with both Sarah and Vicky, had distracted herself by helping with little JJ and then getting her own children ready for their trip back to Portland. And when she broke down, as she frequently did, Vicky or Sarah was always there to weep and pray with her. When it became clear that the need for their assistance was winding down, the Madisons packed up their own sight and then came by for a teary farewell before heading north. As Jesse gave Mac a long hug, he whispered that they would see each other again and that he would be in prayer for all of them. Sarah, tears rolling down her cheeks, simply kissed Mac on the forehead and then held on to Nan, who again broke into sobs and moans. Sarah sang something, words Mac couldn't quite hear, but it calmed his wife until she was steady enough to let Sarah go. Mac couldn't even bear to watch as the couple finally walked away. As the Doucettes readied to go, Mac took a minute to thank Amber and Emmy for comforting and reaching out to his own, especially when he couldn't. Josh cried his goodbyes. He wasn't brave anymore, at least not today. Kate, on the other hand, had become a rock, busying herself, making sure that everyone had everyone else's home and email addresses. Vicky's world had been shaken by the events, and now she had to be almost pride from Nan as her own grief threatened to sweep her away. Nan held her, stroking her hair and whispering prayers into her ear until she was settled enough to walk to the waiting car. By noon, all of the families were on the road. Marianne drove Nan and the kids home where family would be waiting to care for and comfort them. Mac and Emil joined Officer Dalton, who is now just Tommy, and headed into Joseph and Tommy's patrol car. There, they grabbed sandwiches, which were barely touched, and then drove to the police station. Tommy Dalton was the father of two daughters himself, his oldest being only five, so it was easy to see that this case struck a particular nerve with him. He extended every kindness and courtesy he could to his new friends, especially Mac. Now came the hardest part waiting. Mac felt as if he was moving in slow motion inside the eye of a hurricane of activity activity happening all around him. Reports filtered in from everywhere. Even Emil was busy networking with the people and professionals he knew. The FBI entourage arrived mid-afternoon from field offices in three cities. It was clear from the start that the person in charge was Special Agent Wachowski, a small, slim woman who was all fire and motion, and to whom Mac took an instant liking. She publicly returned the favor, and from that moment on, no one questioned his presence at even the most intimate of conversations or debriefings. After setting up her command center at the hotel, the FBI agent asked Mac to come in for, for a formal interview, something she insisted was routine in these kinds of circumstances. Agent Wachowski rose from behind the desk she was working, at and held out her hand as he reached for the handshake she clasps both her hands around his and smiled grimly mr phillips i apologize that i haven't been able to spend much time with you so far we've been frantically setting up communications with all the law enforcement and other agencies involved in trying to get missy back safely i'm so sorry that we have had to meet under these under such conditions Mac believed her. Mac, he said. I beg your pardon? Mac, please call me Mac. Well, Mac, then please call me Sam. Short for Samantha. But I grew up kind of a tomboy and beat up the kids who would dare call me Samantha to my face. Mac couldn't help but smile, relaxing a little into the chair as he watched her quickly sort through a couple of folders full of papers. Mac, are you up for a few questions? She asked without looking up. I'll do my best, he answered, grateful for the opportunity to do anything. Good. I won't make you walk through all the details again. I have the reports and everything that you told the others, but I have a couple of important things to go over with you. She looked up, making eye contact. Anything I can do to help, confessed Mac. I'm feeling very useless at the moment. Mac, I understand how you feel, but your presence here is important. And believe me, there is not a person here who doesn't care about your missy. We will do everything in our power to get her back safely. Thank you, was all Mac could say. And he looked down at the floor. Emotions seemed so near the surface, and even the least bit of kindness seemed to poke holes in his reserve. Okay, now. I've had a good off-the-record talk with your friend Officer Tommy and he filled me in on everything that you and he have talked about so don't feel like you have to protect his butt. He's, He's all right in my book. Mac looked up and nodded then smiled again at her. So, she continued, have you noticed anyone strange around your family these past few days? Mac was surprised and sat back in his chair. You mean he's been stalking us? No, he seems to choose his victims at random, though they were all about the age of your daughter with similar hair color. We think that he spots them a day or two before and waits and watches from nearby for an opportune moment. Have you seen anyone unusual or out of place near the lake? Perhaps near the bathrooms? Mac recoiled at the thought of his children being watched, being targets, He tried to think past his own imagination, but came up blank. I'm sorry, not that I can remember. Did you stop anywhere on your way to the campgrounds or notice anyone strange when you were hiking or sightseeing in the area? We stopped at Multimall Falls on the way here, and we've been all over the area the past three days, but I don't recall seeing anyone who looked out of the ordinary. Who would have thought? Exactly, Mac, so don't beat yourself up. Something may come to mind later. No matter how small or irrelevant it might seem, please let us know. She paused to look at another paper on her desk. What about a green military truck? Have you noticed anything like that around while you were here? Mac racked his memory. I really can't remember seeing anything like it. I can't, I really can't remember seeing anything like it. Special Agent Wachowski continued to question Mac for the next 15 minutes, but could not jar his memory enough to provide anything helpful. She finally closed her notebook. It stood, extending her hand. Mac, again, I am so sorry about Missy. If anything breaks, I will personally let you know the minute it happens. At 5 p.m., the first promising report finally came in from the Imnaha roadblock as she had promised agent wikowski immediately sought out mac and filled him in on the details two couples had encountered a green military looking truck matching the description of the vehicle matching the description of the vehicle everyone was searching for they had been exploring some old nez per se sites off national forest 4260 in one of the more remote areas of the National Reserve. And on their way out, they had come face-to-face with the vehicle just south of the junction, where NF-4260 and NF-250 split. Because that section of road was basically... Because that section of road was basically one lane, they had to back up to a safe place to allow the truck to pass. They noted that the pickup had a number of gas cans in the back, plus a fair amount of camping gear. The odd part was that the man had bent over toward his passenger side as if looking for something on the floor, pulled his hat down low, and wore a big coat in the heat of the day, almost as if he was afraid of them. They had just laughed at, laughed him off as probably being one of those m- militia freaks. The instant the report was announced to the group, tensions in the station increased. Tommy came over to let Mac know that unfortunately, everything he had learned so far fit the little lady killer's m o to head for remote areas out of which he would eventually hike. It was obvious he knew where he was going as the local, local as the locale where he had been spotted was well off the beaten path. unlucky for him that someone else had been so far out. There as well. With evening quickly approaching, an intense discussion began regarding the efficacy if, regarding the efficacy of immediate pursuit or holding off until daybreak. It seemed that all who spoke, regardless of their point of view, were deeply affected by the situation something in the hearts of most humans of most human beings simply cannot abide pain inflicted on the innocent especially children even broken men serving in the worst correctional facilities will often first take out their own rage on those who have caused suffering to children even in such a world of relative morality causing harm to a child is still considered absolutely wrong standing near the back of the room mac listened impatiently to what seemed like time-wasting bickering he was almost ready to kidnap tommy if he had to if he had to and go after the guy himself it felt as if every second counted although it certainly felt longer to mac the various departments and personalities agreed quickly and unanimous, unanimously to set out in pursuit just as soon as a few arrangements could be made although there weren't many to drive out of the area, and roadblocks are being set up immediately to prevent this. There was a very real concern that a skilled hiker could pass undetected into the Idaho wilderness to the east or Washington state to the north. While officials in the towns of Lewiston, Idaho and Clarkston, Washington were being contacted and notified of the situation, Mac quickly called Nan to give her an update and then left with Tommy. By now, he had only one prayer left. Dear God, please, please, please take care of my missy. I just can't right now. Tears traced their way down his cheeks and then spilled off into onto his shirt. By 7.30 p.m., the convoy of patrol cars. By 7.30 p.m. By 7.30 p.m., the convoy of patrol cars, FBI SUVs, pickups, car- carrying dogs and kennels, and some ranger vehicles headed up the Imnaha Highway. Instead of turning east onto the Wallawa Mountain Road, which would have taken them directly into the National Reserve, they stayed on the Imnaha and headed north. Eventually, they took the Lower Imnaha Road and finally Dugbar Road into the Reserve. Mac was glad he was traveling with someone who knew the area. It seemed at times that Dugbar Road went in all directions simultaneously. It was almost as if whoever had named these roads had run out of ideas or simply got tired or drunk and began naming everything Dugbar just so he could go home. The roads, with frequent narrow switchbacks edging steep drop-offs, with so frequent narrow switchbacks, edging, steep drop-offs, became even more treacherous in the pitch dark of night. Progress slowed into a crawl. Finally, they passed the point where the green pickup had last been seen, and a mile later, they came to the junction where NF-4260 went farther north northeast and NF-250 headed southeast. There, as planned, the caravan split into two, with a small group heading north up the 4260 with Special Agent Wachowski, while the rest, including Mac, Emil, and Tommy, went southeast on the 250. A few difficult miles later, this larger group split again. Tommy and a dog truck continuing down the 250, where, according to the maps, the road would end, and the rest taking the more easterly route through the park on NF4240 down toward the Temperance Creek area. At this point, all search efforts slowed even more. The trackers were now on foot and backed up by powerful floodlights while they looked for signs of recent activity on the roads. Anything that might suggest the particular area they were examining was something other than a dead end. Almost two hours later, as they were moving at a snail's pace toward the end of 2.50, a call came into to Dalton from Wilkowski. Her team had caught a break, about ten miles from the junction where they had separated. An old, unnamed road left the 4260 and headed straight north for almost two miles. It was barely visible and deeply potted. They would either have missed it entirely or ignored it, except that one of the trackers had flashed his floodlight off a hubcap less than 50 feet from the main road. Out of curiosity, he retrieved it, and under the covering of road dust, found it splattered with specks of green paint. The hubcap had probably been lost when the truck had tussled with one of the many deep potholes strewn in that direction. Tommy's group immediately turned back the way it had come. Mac didn't want to let himself begin to hope that perhaps, by some miracle, missy might still be alive especially when everything he knew told him otherwise 20 minutes later another call from wakowski this time to tell them they had found the truck choppers and search planes would never have seen it from the sky hidden as it was under a carefully built lean-to of limbs and brush what yeah it's in the refrigerator hidden as it was under carefully building two of limbs off the brush. Yeah, if you want to make it, go ahead. It took... Yep. You can do that too. Sorry. Okay. It took Max crew almost three hours to reach the first team, and by then it was all over. The dogs had done the rest, uncovering a descending game trail that led more than a mile into a small hidden valley. There they found a rundown little shack near the edge of a pristine lake barely half a mile across, fed by a cascading creek a hundred yards away. A century or so earlier, this had probably been a settler's home. It had two good sized rooms enough to house a small family. Since that time, it had most likely served as an occasional occasional hunters, hunter's or poacher's cabin. By the time Mac and his friends arrived, the sky was beginning to show the grays of pre-dawn. A base camp had been set up well away from the battered little cabin in order to preserve the crime scene. The moment Wilkowski's group had found the place, dog trackers had been sent out in different directions to try to locate a scent. Occasionally, the baying indicated that they had found something only to have it disappear again. Now they were all returning to regroup and plan the day's strategy. Special Agent Samantha Wilkowski was sitting at a card table doing some map work and drinking a A large, dripping bottle of water, when Mac walked up, she offered him a grim smile, which he didn't return, and an extra bottle, which he accepted. Her eyes were sad and tender, but her words were all business. Hey, Mac, she hesitated. Why don't you pull up a chair? Mac didn't want to sit down. He needed to do something to stop his stomach from churning. Sensing trouble, he stood and waited for her to continue. Mac, we found something, but it's not good news. He fumbled for the right words. Did you find Missy? It was the question that he didn't want to hear the answer to, but he desperately needed to know. No, we didn't find her. Sam paused and started to stand up. But I do need you to come and identify something we found down in that old shack. I need to know if it was... She caught herself, but it was too late. I mean, if it is hers. If it is hers. His gaze went to the ground. He again felt a million years old, almost wishing he could somehow turn himself into a big, unfeeling rock. Oh, Mac, I'm so sorry. Sam apologized. Standing up. Look, we can do this later if you'd like. I just thought... He couldn't look at her, and even found it difficult to come up with the words. He could speak without falling apart. He could feel the dam about to burst again. Let's do it now, he mumbled softly. I want to know everything there is to know. Wachowski must have signaled the others, because although Mac didn't hear anything, he suddenly felt Emil and Tommy each take one of his arms as they turned and followed the special agent down the short path to the shack. Three grown men, arms locked in some special grace of solidarity, walking together, each one toward his own worst nightmare. A member of the forensic team opened the door of the shack to let them in. Generator-powered lighting illuminated every part of the main room. Shelving lined the walls surrounding an old table, a few chairs, and an old sofa that someone had hauled in with no little effort. Mac immediately saw what he had come to identify, and, turning, crumpled into the arms of his two friends, and began to weep uncontrollably. On the floor by the fireplace laid Missy's torn and blood-soaked red dress. For ne- for Mac, the next few days and weeks became numbing, a numbing blur of interviews with law enforcement and the press. Followed by a memorial service for Missy, with a small empty coffin and an endless sea of faces, all sad as they paraded by, no one knowing what to say. Sometime during the weeks that followed, Mac began the slow and painful trek back into everyday life. The little ladybug the little lady killer, it seemed, was credited with taking his fifth victim, Melissa Ann Phillips. As was true in the other four cases, authorities didn't recover Missy's body. Even though search teams had scorned the forest around the shack for days after its discovery, as in every other instance, the killer had left no fingerprints and no DNA. He'd left no useful evidence anywhere, only the pen. It was as if the man were a ghost. At some point in the process, Mac attempted to emerge from his own pain and grief at least with his family they had lost a sister and daughter but it would but it would be wrong for them to lose a father and a husband as well although no one involved was left unmarked by the tragedy kate seemed to have been affected the most disappearing into a shell like a turtle protecting its soft underbelly from anything potentially dangerous It seemed that she would poke her head out only when she felt fully safe, which was becoming less and less often. Mac and Nian both worried increasingly about her, but couldn't seem to find the right words to penetrate the fortress she was building around her heart. Attempts at conversation would turn into one-way monologues, with sounds bouncing off her stone visage. It was as if something had died inside her and now was slowly infecting her from the inside, spilling out occasionally in bitter words or emotionless silence. Josh fared much better, due in part to the long-distance relationship he had kept up with Amber. Email and the telephone gave him an outlet for his pain, and she had given him the time and space to grieve. He was also preparing to graduate from high school with all the distractions that his senior year provided. The great sadness had descended, and in differing degrees cloaked everyone whose life had touched Missy's. Mac and Nan weathered the storm of loss together with reasonable success, and in some way they were closer for it. Nan had made it clear from the start and repeatedly that she did not blame Mac in any way for what happened. Understandably, it took Mac much longer to let himself off the hook, even a little bit. It's so easy to get sucked into the if-only game, and playing it is a short and slippery slide into despair. If only he had decided not to take the kids on that trip. If only he had said no when they asked to use the canoe. If only he had left the day before, if only, if only, if only, and then to have it all end with nothing. The fact that he was unable to bury Missy's body magnified his failure as her daddy. That she still was out there somewhere alone in the forest haunted him every day. Now, three and a half years later, Missy was officially presumed to have been murdered. Life would never be normal again, not that any time is really ever normal. It would be so empty without his missy. The tragedy had also increased the rift in Mac's own relationship with God, but he ignored this growing sense of separation. Instead, he tried to embrace a stoic, unfeeling faith, and even though Mac found some comfort and peace in that, it didn't stop the nightmares where his feet were stuck in the mud and his soundless screams could not save his precious Missy. The bad dreams were becoming less frequent, and laughter and moments of joy were slowly returning. But he felt guilty about these. So when Mac received the note from Papa, quote-unquote Papa, telling him to meet him back at the shack, it was no small event. Did God even write notes? And why the shack? the icon of his deepest pain. Certainly God would have had better places to meet with him. A dark thought even crossed his mind that the killer could be taunting him or luring him away to leave the rest of his family unprotected. Maybe it was all just a cruel hoax, but then why was it signed Papa? Try as he might, Mac could not escape the desperate possibility that the note just might be from God after all even if the thought of God's passing notes did not fit well with his theo- theological training. In seminary, he had been taught that God had completely stopped any overt communication with moderns, preferring to have them only listen to and follow sacred scripture, properly interpreted, of course. God's voice had been reduced to paper, and even that paper had to be moderated and deciphered by the proper authorities and intellects. It seemed that direct communication with God was something exclusively for the ancients and uncivilized, while educated Westerners' access to God was mediated and controlled by the intelligentsia. Nobody wanted God in a box, just in a book, Especially inexpensive, one bound in leather with gilt edges. Or was that gilt edges? It says with gilt edges, G I L T edges. And then it says, or was that with gilt edges, G U I L T edges? The more Mac thought about it, the more confused and irritated he became. Who sent the damn note? Whether it was God or the killer or some prankster, what did it matter? Whichever way he looked at it, he felt as if he were being toyed with. And anyway, what good was following God at all? Look where it got him. But in spite of his anger and depression, Mac knew that he needed some answers. He realized he was stuck and Sunday prayers and hymns weren't cutting cutting it anymore if they ever really had. Cloistered spiritually seemed to change nothing in the lives of the people he knew except maybe nan but she was skeptical god might really love her she wasn't a screw-up like him he was sick of god and god's religion sick of all the little religious social clubs that didn't seem to make any real difference or any or affect any real changes yes mac wanted more and he was about to get much more than he bargained for